Good morning and happy first Sunday of Advent. I was looking at the Advent candles right before the first service, and I was, I think I remarked in the first service that it's good to see we have thicker Advent candles. I remember my first year here about four years ago, I was watching, sitting in the congregation, watching the Advent candle whittle down where it almost burnt the wreath, and I remember Bill Kelly running up and putting it out, so uh, it's good to see that we have thicker Advent candles. Um, Today we're starting a four-week sermon series in the book of Revelation. Uh, Now, Revelation, it's probably no stretch for me to say, presents uh, numerous challenges for us. If you've ever read through the book of Revelation before or you've done any study of the book of Revelation, you're probably aware that there's no shortage of opinions on some of the finer details of Revelation or even some of the big picture interpretive keys to Revelation. So because of that, we put a worship guide in your bulletin this morning that'll be, that gives you one interpretive key to hang your hat on as we approach Revelation. I'm indebted uh, to Mike Kruger at RTS Charlotte, who has remarked there's two major interpretive keys when we go to Revelation. One is this idea of recapitulation, which I, uh, you can read more about. I think that's in your worship guide. And the other is about the imagery, that it's important that we understand that Revelation isn't intended to be chronology from start to finish. It repeats itself over and over again. And as far as the imagery is concerned in Revelation, we're not supposed to look at, say, the beast for one and say, well, that beast is Caesar. Uh, that, that is one manifestation of the beast, but throughout history and even into the future, there's multiple manifestations of that. Any kingdom that sets itself up against the kingdom of God would be a manifestation of the beast. So those are just two small interpretive keys to hang our hats on as we approach the book of Revelation. But lest we lose the forest for the trees, if we could boil down the message of Revelation to one summary statement, it's actually pretty easy, and it's God wins. God wins. So if you're ever asked the question, tell me about Revelation, all you need to do is say, God wins, and you've summarized the book effectively. Well, with that said, we're going to be in Revelation 4, 1 through 11 this morning. It's only 11 verses in total. Before we read from the Word of God, though, let's go to our God in prayer. Will you please bow with me as I pray? Almighty God, we thank you for your Word of God, for the Word that is living and active We pray that you would help bring understanding to our minds, help us appropriate this word in our hearts and in the way that we live and conduct ourselves in the world after we're sent out of here. We pray that you would give us a right understanding of this book, of this chapter, of this text before us, and that you would help us see Jesus Christ in it, uh, him and him crucified. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Please follow along with me as I read Revelation 4, 1 through 11. I'll be reading out of the ESV. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here. Now we'll show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, 
the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of our Lord. Well, this Sunday marks the first Sunday in Advent. Now, if you've been with, if you've been in the church for a while, you're probably familiar with the Advent celebration as a weekly countdown of sorts to Christmas. Advent as such never occurs in the Bible and neither does Christmas as a holiday, but Advent nevertheless touches on a very biblical theme. It touches on the theme of expectation or longing, eager longing and awaiting. And it was a celebration that developed in church history. It developed around 380 AD, wherein the run-up to Christmas took on special significance. And it was implemented, first and foremost, in order to keep our eyes on Christ and to celebrate Christ's coming. In fact, that's what the word Advent means in Latin. It just means coming. And in its historic practice, it was both a celebration of the incarnation that had already taken place in history, the incarnation, of course, being Christ, the eternal Son of God coming down to earth, assuming human flesh, living the life that we should have lived, dying the death we should have died. But Advent also is an anticipation of the second coming. It's a looking forward, an eager longing, an expectation that Christ will come again as he promised. So when we celebrate Advent, we're doing nothing more than celebrating the coming of Jesus Christ, who came the first time in the words of Hebrews to, quote, bear the sins of many and will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the ninth chapter of Hebrews. And the reason why we thought Revelation would be a good book to look at during the Advent season is because it moves our eyes accordingly. It moves our eyes accordingly from the stress and the anxiety that for many of us occupies this season for us. And it moves us instead to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It moves us to see Jesus Christ, who in his first coming bound Satan from deceiving the nations any longer, and who will come a second time to deliver the final blow to Satan. Revelation focuses us appropriately on this Lord of Lords who has come, and in the words of the opening of Revelation, will come again on the clouds. And if that's largely the scaffolding, these two comings of Christ that envelops the entire book of Revelation, then today's text, Revelation 4, 1 through 11, is something like the foundation on which that scaffolding is built. As our text opens, we see John the Apostle is uniquely called behind the curtain. And this conjures up sort of temple imagery for us. He's called sort of into the heavenly, holy of holies, into the throne room of God to behold the majesty of God and to hear this symphonic chorus of praise of who God is, who is holy, 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 who is worthy, who created all things. And if we're bringing in other texts, Scripture interprets Scripture from Paul, who intricately planned even our redemption from before the foundation of the world. 
John is confronted here very clearly by the all-sovereign God who sits on his throne and reigns. And if the work of Christ are foregrounded throughout the entire book of Revelation, then this text, this encounter with the omniscient God of all glory is the backdrop on which the entire drama of redemption is set. And in the time and place in which Revelation was originally written, right at the end of the first century, this is a message that the churches in Asia particularly needed to hear. See, the churches in Asia who are initially receiving this book are churches who are experiencing a trying time of tribulation. And unfortunately, historians maintain that for the church, they're aware that even increased tribulation and persecution seems imminent. There's more to come on the horizon that they're aware of. They're seeing the writing on the walls, so to speak, and they know what's coming. So in this brewing cauldron of anxiety and fear and uncertainty, John starts out after he speaks to the churches with the seven letters in Revelation 4 by giving them a picture of triumph that begins with God on his throne, sovereignly ruling and governing all things. Surely that's no less a message than what we need to hear today. Earlier this week, I came across two separate articles, they're related, somewhat separate though, that asked a very specific question. The first one asked the specific question, quote, why are more American teenagers than ever suffering from severe anxiety? Now, the entirety of this article from the New York Times set out to explore this question, beginning with the observation that there seems, at least anecdotally, to be a lot of incapacitating anxiety among American teenagers today. And then it explored some of the reasons why this is so and how schools and parents are coping. Now, there's probably no single culprit to point to, and of course, far more could have been said in that article from a Christian worldview perspective, but I do think the article was on to something when it identified one of the possible culprits as the proliferation of social media and of technology, specifically the smartphone. The second article I came across this week tackled that very question, asking the question, how technology, for all the genuine good that technology really does bring to our lives and to the world, how it's unfortunately also created a ripe, a ripe environment for anxiety and fear to flourish. Now to be sure, the problem, the root problem, isn't technology. It's the human heart, and it always has been the human heart. But there's something true, I think, and ironic to the fact that the very artifacts that we tout as symbols of human advancement are also the tools that are feeding our fear and our anxiety. And one of the byproducts is that in the process, we've lost our sense of wonder and of awe and of trust. Think about it like this. If we really believe that we're ultimately in control of everything that happens in our lives and in the world, as technological advancements may make it seem, and that human flourishing is really only a matter of mastery and control, then not only will our failures to do so continuously and exponentially spawn anxiety, not only will our failures receive, re, uh, reveal the scathing reality that we're really not as in control as we think we are, but in our functional atheism, we've also lost a sense of awe and wonder for the one who really is in control of all things, the one who really does govern and rule all of the cosmos. But into this anxiety-ridden quagmire of which technology is only one possible agent, Revelation speaks. And it speaks in particular through this passage by pointing us to the one who really is in control and sovereignly ruling and governing all things. 
It gives us a much-needed heavenly perspective on matters when we're so often consumed with the earthly. And in the process of doing that, it also restores in us a wonder and an awe and a trust in the only one worthy of such things. I think Dennis Johnson, who I'm indebted to, for, indebted to for some of these observations, is absolutely correct when he writes, quote, the book of Revelation wages war on the reductionism that chokes all. So how then does John bring us back from our perpetual anxiety and self-delusional self-trust to a state of wonder, awe, and trust in God? Well, the short answer is worship. John in our text is drawn into this incredible scene of heavenly worship where he's ultimately showing the one who's ruling and reigning over creation and redemption. And because of who he is, not only for what he does, that's part of it, but fundamentally for who he is, he's worthy of receiving our worship. And there are three things that I want us to specifically focus on in, on in this text about the significance of worship as a sort of panacea to our perpetual anxiety. And those three things are this. We see in this text a picture of worship that we'll dissect and unpack. We hear the confession of worship, and we're moved by the possibility of worship. Simple three-point outline, the picture of worship, the confession of worship, and the possibility of worship. So first, the picture of worship. Now, I suspect that if you're anything like me, when we uh, initially soak in these descriptions of the throne room of God and the worshiping community that surrounds the throne, there's at least two things that go through our minds. Now, I'm sure that there's even more than that, but two things specifically that go through our mind. On the one hand, this picture leaves us with an acute sense of God's holiness and majesty. You have, in this scene, lightning and thunder and a whole worshiping community around the throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're prostrating before the throne. We see this image of the elders taking off their crowns and tossing them, of throwing them before the throne. It's a scene that confronts us clearly, first and foremost, with an acute sense of God's holiness. But on the other hand, this scene leaves us with a litany of questions. Who in the world are these 24 elders? Why do they have crowns? What about these four living creatures? Why do they have spider eyes and wings? And some of these questions we'll address as we continue. But one of the significant features of this entire picture that I want us to focus on right now at the outset is that the community of worship we see around the throne leaves us with a picture that the worshiping community is bigger and grander than we see when we gather together each Sunday morning. It's important to remember that this vision of worship before John's eyes isn't a one-and-done event. There's good reason to believe that something like this, this incredible scene we're seeing, is going on in heaven right now. There's this comment in verse 8 about how this worship is perpetual. Night and day, it's going on. So there's good reasons to believe that the heavenly council is gathered around the throne of God right now, really enacting this very scene before us in the scriptures. And when we gather as a church for corporate worship, something significant happens to us too. And that is, in a very real sense, we participate in this heavenly worship. 
Now, I'm not going to read the entirety of this text, but again, Scripture interprets Scripture, so just to bring in another text, Hebrews 12, 22 through 24, maybe that's something to note in your Bibles, make a note of that. It informs us that our worship on earth, in a sense, is translated into heaven when we gather as a body. In light of this Hebrews passage, one of my uh, former professors, Dr. Chuck Hill of RTS, he writes this. He says, quote, we are to conceive of worship, not essentially and in its true significance as situated on earth, but as a translation to the heavenly reality. This comes to expression again in the invitation to consider ourselves already partakers in the great heavenly assembly of the firstborn ones, the spirits of the just made perfect, where angels also gather in celebration, Hebrews 2, 22 through 24. Christian worship is a translation into the heavenly world. That's significant to understand and to grasp. And as a result, when we gather together for worship at Spruce Creek, not only is there something assuring, the, assuring about the fact that we're gathered together right now for, with our brothers and sisters who are spread throughout Volusia County, there's something assuring about that, but there's something even more assuring about the fact that we're also gathering for worship together with a whole community located in heaven. Our worship, in other words, isn't isolated. We're not alone. We worship as part of a much bigger worshiping community than our eyes see on Sunday morning. And I think there's something so assuring about that reality. And let me illustrate it like this. One of the questions that captivates both astronomers and astronomy enthusiasts is the question, are we alone in the universe? Now, this might reveal more about me than anything, but I follow astronomy news on my uh, news feed on my phone, and uh, each week I'm reading at least a couple different times uh, stories about these new instruments that space agencies around the world are employing in their search for extraterrestrial life, or new planetary discoveries that are touted as breakthrough discoveries for potentially habitable homes for life. And occasionally, of course, there's even fringe astronomy articles that ask the question, have we already already been visited. Now, whatever we make of the merits or the demerits of those discoveries, these articles are tapping in to a natural impulse that exists in all of us. We all want something transcendent. We don't want to be alone. We want to know that when we gather together for worship or in whatever we're doing, that there's a purpose that's higher and bigger than us. And these articles, astronomy articles, are providing a naturalistic response to that real impulse in all of us. But John has a very different answer to that impulse. And his answer is, first and foremost, the all-sovereign creator of the entire universe who's ruling and governing all things. But second, it's also the worshiping community of which we're only a part. You see, one of the reasons this vision gives us a, a picture of assurance is because it reminds us we're not alone. Worship rightly conceived is a panacea of sorts for our rampant anxiety because it reminds us that in our confession, we don't stand isolated. We don't stand alone. We stand together with a worshiping community here and even a worshiping community in heaven. And to bring in another text, Hebrews 12.1, in our worship, we're also surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us in worship, testifying to the God who reigns. We're not alone, and this picture beautifully, I think, reinforces that for us. Now, of course, that's neither the engine for worship, nor is that the reason for worship. We're going to get to that in a second. 
but it is an assuring comfort to know that we're part of a much larger worshiping community that spans geography, spans chronology, and if I may, even spans ontology. But with that said, let's move to our second point. Second, the confession of worship. Well, this passage paints a somewhat enigmatic picture of worship in that there are several perplexing details that I think all of us would like ironed out to one degree or another. The confessions of praise that are uttered on the lips of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, together with the act of prostration that accompanies these confessions, from the elders at least, brings a bit more clarity to the picture by unpacking who God is and what a proper response to God looks like. So who is God? Who is God? Well, these confessions of praise tell us several critical things. We learn that God is holy, 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 which essentially means he's other, other, other. This mirrors that confession of uh, Isaiah 6, which Vic beautifully read for us, where Isaiah is drawn into the throne room of God, and he hears that same cry from the seraphim, who stand before the throne of God, essentially crying out in the same way. It's a confession that has its starting point in praising God simply for who he is and not necessarily for what he does for us. And that's the movement of these confessions from start to finish in our text. They move from praising God simply for who he is and then only secondly for praising God for what he does. And maybe that begs the question for us, why do we love God? Do we love God simply because of what he does for us? Or do we love God fundamentally because of who he is? It's a challenging question for all of us to consider. We also learn in this text that he's almighty, which means he's omnipotent or he's all-powerful. And who he is as the holy, omnipotent God spans from eternity to eternity because there was never a time when he was not who he fundamentally is. Now, to be sure, we could take all of these descriptions of God and we could see how they play out each and every one of them through, the, through redemptive history as we unfold the pages of Scripture and see what uh, Scripture as a whole has to say about God. But these confessions specifically inform our worship in two specific ways that I want to hone in on. First, these confessions are confessions that are applicable to God alone. New Testament commentator Robert Mounts observes that in Jewish and Christian writings of the day, so keeping in mind that uh, during the New, when the New Testament's being composed and written, and even during the Old Testament time and the 400 years in between, there was a whole host of other Jewish and Christian literature that cropped up. But Robert Mounts observes that in all of that literature, the word behind Almighty, the Greek word behind Almighty that we read in this text, is never in any case applied to anybody else other than God. It's used exclusively of God and nobody else. So throughout this throne room scene, God is explicitly setting himself apart as the only one who merits exclusive worship by virtue of being holy in a class of his own. We could look at another image too, not just the confessions, but also this description of the throne room scene. We have this description that around the throne was this sea of glass, And of course, in the Old Testament, the sea was often associated with the primordial chaos where evil and chaos would sort of spring from. But before the throne of God, that sea is quiet and it's still. According to the Old Testament, the only one who could still nature was God alone. So these pictures of worship that we find in this text are applicable to God alone. 
And yet, this picture of the exalted confessions of praise and the exalted confessions of praise that follow, they aren't esoteric ritualism. They reach down into our very lives too, specifically by challenging the ultimate objects of our confessions of praise. One scholar, Joseph Mangina, writes this. He says, the thrust of this vision, meaning this vision in Revelation 4, is powerfully affirmative, meaning we see in this text everything that God is. We see in this text this powerful picture of what the throne room of God looks like. But Mangina continues, yet the affirmations have an edge to them. To confess that God alone is the creator, that only he is worthy of our worship, entails the denial that anyone or anything else should occupy the heavenly throne. Yet, so often our lives enthrone relationships, or career advancement, or our children, or our status, or maybe even our government, and we wonder why we're such anxious people. So often the habits that we as a people are unconsciously or consciously cultivating are often doing more to kill us than they are to enrich us as people who love God and love others because at their core, we're so often enthroning other things. You know, we say it all the time and quote from Calvin all the time here, but I think he's absolutely correct when he says that our hearts are idol-making factories. We form and fashion idols all the time We exalt other things that aren't worthy of our praise and worship to the pinnacle of our lives. And as a result, we've become anxious and fearful people through and through. And yet when we read these confessions on the lips of the 24 elders and the four living creatures, it has a very effective and contagious way of even restoring our confession too, because it reminds us what a proper confession of God looks like. And that leads to the second observation, and that is there's something else equally important about these confessions. They're informed confessions. These are confessions that spring from an encounter with God, an encounter that knows the living God and is animated by a knowledge of God. And likewise, we too are called in our worship to rest and draw from a deep-seated knowledge of who God is found in the scriptures so that our confession is also rightly informed. Let me tell you a story real quick. About seven years ago, uh, some of you might know, I, I used to be in ministry with Campus Outreach. And about seven years ago, when I first entered ministry with Campus Outreach, one evening I was developing a relationship with a few different students, and we decided to you know, go out and hang out in a, um, in a more informal way. And so we all went out karaoke. You know, you might not know this, but back in the day, I was a karaoke enthusiast, and that was our ministry stomping ground. So there was one student in particular who, um, a few days earlier, I had met him. He identified himself identified as an, as an agnostic, but he told me in passing that he was really interested in theology. So my goal for the night was, as we were out and in between renditions of serenading the crowd with Carrie Underwood, as I often did, um, <clears throat> I was going to pull him aside and we were going to have some very real conversation about what his conception of theology was, what his conception of God was. So the opportunity presented itself and we had time to talk and I asked him just a very simple question and it was, tell me what you believe about God said you're interested in theology. Tell me, like, what does that mean to you? What, what, what's that mean? And um, I'll never forget what he said. I remember him explaining to me that his belief was that God was an ancient civilization of alien astronauts who came down to Earth to begin the human race. 
Now, I don't remember exactly what I said in the follow-up to that. Um, I, I know that it was probably something that was incredibly insensitive and snarky, but it did give me the opportunity to stumble through a gospel presentation. Now, I suspect that after hearing that, many of us are holding back laughter. I heard some laughter. I understand that. Somewhat dumbfounded, maybe, by what my friend had said. But let me suggest, boldly even, that if our confession of who God is isn't rooted in and informed through and through by the divine revelation found in the scriptures, then we might as well be saying the same thing. You see, apart from God meeting with us on his own terms, meeting God according to the scriptures, we're bound. It's inevitable that we're going to fashion a God in our own image. Think of Paul, for instance, and his encounter in Acts 17, another good text to bookmark, where Paul is in the Areopagus. He's in Athens, and he addresses this crowd of influential philosophers in the mecca of the philosophical world of Athens. And when Paul is invited to stand up and declare in this assembly, he first remarks to this group of philosophers that they worship what they don't know. They worship a, quote, unknown God. And because they worship a God they don't really know, the best they can do, and this is sort of the imagery that crops up in Paul's description, the best they can do apart from God revealing himself is to sort of grope in the uncertainty of darkness, trying to feel their way towards God, but coming up short perpetually because they can't really grasp and understand who he is. And as a consequence, they'll never come to a final state of rest. Friends, if our confession and our praxis isn't rooted in who God is according to the scriptures, we're we're basically doing the same thing. So what is your confession? And is your life animated through and through by that confession? I think we have a beautiful picture in our text of what it looks like when we have a confession and when a life is animated by that confession. And that picture is these elders throwing their crowns before the throne of God, throwing everything that they would have considered worthy, casting all of their worth, all of that is worthless before God because he is the only one who is worthy. And they prostrate, they throw themselves down in humility before God. And friends, that's really the movement of worship, a right confession, knowing who God is according to the scripture inevitably leads to that. So do we have a right confession, and are we living out of that confession? Well, this leads to our third point. Third, the possibility of worship. What makes our worship possible in the first place? And as a corollary, what gives us reason for hope? Well, keeping these questions in the back of our mind, I want us to focus on these four living creatures for a moment. Who are they, and what is their role? Well, the first thing to note is that these four living creatures resemble pretty clearly the four living creatures that we find at the outset of the book of Ezekiel. Familiar with Ezekiel, you have these four living creatures that we meet in sort of the beginning of Ezekiel. And really, that's the idea here is in Revelation, they're supposed to resemble these four living creatures found in Ezekiel. And we also find in Ezekiel later that these four living creatures are identified as cherubim, these these uh, divine counselors called cherubim. And their main activity in our text and elsewhere in Ezekiel is to testify who God is, much like the seraphim in Isaiah 6, praising and crying out that God is holy, holy, holy. They attend in the throne room of God. 
Now, there was a rich, just for a quick aside, there was a rich early church interpretation that developed with the church father Irenaeus, this guy who lived in the early or mid to late second century AD, and it was carried through by another guy named Victronus, whereby these four living creatures were collectively identified as representatives of the entirety of creation. So the idea was just as like the, the ox and the, and the eagle and the man, representatives of the entire creation, just as they stand around the throne room of God singing praise to God, so too does the entire creation. The entire creation is supposed to praise God. But peeling back, and this is sort of the way the early church fathers did it with their interpretation, sort of like peeling back an onion, they then took it one step farther. And they said that each of these four living creatures individually was identified with one of the four respective gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So the idea, the idea there was they said that uh, John, for instance, was represented by the eagle because John starts out with this transcendent picture of who God is, who, or who Jesus was from the beginning. He was God. Um, they identified the ox, this picture of the ox with Luke because Luke starts out with a temple and it evokes images of sacrifice. So the idea was just as the four living creatures stand before the throne and witness to who God is, so too the four gospels stand together. And although they each bring their unique perspectives, they collectively witness to God in Christ. Now, although that interpretation is more of an allegorical stretch, what it gets right is the idea that creation, the heavenly council, and even all of scripture has one chief purpose— And that is to bear witness to God and to worship God. That was the idea that the church fathers were trying to evoke by that. But given that these four living creatures are identified as cherubim in Ezekiel, let's fill this out a little bit more. Because elsewhere in scripture, we learn that cherubim were assigned a very specific role as guardians of the holy place. In the original garden temple of Eden, for instance, after Adam and Eve sinned and they are cast out of this primordial temple, what what does God do? He places cherubim at the gate to the temple, to Eden, to guard the way back into the holy place. In the description of the temple, when Solomon constructs the temple in 1 Kings, in 1 Kings 6, we read this description that in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber, there were wood-carved cherubim that presided within the chamber as a reflection of their heavenly role as being guardians of of the temple chamber. And elsewhere in Revelation, they have this role of being dispensers of judgment who deal with defilement and unholiness. They keep out what's unholy. So cherubim have this very clear role of being, even as they worship God, of being guardians, keeping out what's unholy. Now I'm indebted here to Dennis Johnson for this observation, but thinking about the cherubim's role as guardians of what's unholy, how could John, a sinful man, just like Isaiah, just like you and I, how could he have access to the throne room of God, even in the form of the vision, when cherubim are right there guarding the way. How does John get to enter in the throne room of God? How do we, in our worship, get to, in a sense, enter heaven, the throne room of God in our worship, being sinful people as we are? Well, the answer, John's called by Jesus himself. This entire throne room scene begins with the summons of Jesus, who is the one speaking like a trumpet, who calls out to John, come up here through the great door into the heavenly holy of holies. 
See, outside of Jesus opening the way, there's no way John would have been able to enter into the throne room of God. And friends, had it not been for the work of Jesus, we too could never enter in truly to the anxiety-freeing experience of worship. Worship is predicated on the work of Christ who grants unholy people like you and I access to a holy God. Everything we said about worship up until this point, the community of worship, the confession worship, all of it is made possible only by Christ, who, in the words of Hebrews, suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify his people through his very own blood. There's nothing that speaks as powerfully to our perpetual anxiety than the fact that we who were once not a people have become the people of the living God, only through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's what it means when worship, that's, what, that's the only means to make worship possible. And that's what frees us from our most crushing burden of sin and of death. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for being the God who draws us into worship through the blood of Jesus, who gives us this picture of what worship looks like in the process who reorients our loves so that the anxiety that masters us will begin to have less and less mastery and control over us. Lord, we pray that as we approach the table, the Lord's Supper this morning, that we would remember the blood of Christ that drew us to yourself and that formed us in to a worshiping people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.